My name's Dan. I'm a member here at Charlotte Chapel. Uh, as we come to God's words, uh, it's important to have the Bible with you, uh, and we're going to pray now. Our Father, we ask now, please, that your word would be our guide, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, and that your glory would be our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. You've got the whole crowd at your fingertips. They're hanging on every one of your words. So you're all sitting there over dinner, telling everyone about the gospel, and they're not chattering amongst themselves, they're listening attentively. You've told them about the beauty and joy that there is when sinners come home, when they're forgiven of all of their sins, no matter how evil, and they're welcomed by God. And they love it. They love it. They're listening closely. They want more. What would you say next? You've told them this wonderful parable in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel about the parable of the lost son who sins worse than you could imagine but is welcomed back with forgiveness better than he could ever dream. And they want more. What are you going to say next? Well, maybe I'd teach them about the joys of the new creation. This is what you've got to look forward to now that you're saved. Or if I was in a more miserable miserable mood, it would be something like, these are all the sins you need to stop doing. But it's not that. Surely none of us, having listened to Jesus' wonderful gospel and the wonderful parables in chapter 15, none of us would expect or even want to preach chapter 16. Having taught about the deep mysteries of God's mercy and love to sinners, Jesus now tells us a parable about this unrighteous, dishonest manager. And the whole point of the parable is that Christians should use their wealth to make friends. Surely we wouldn't do that. Well, let's be clear Jesus is not an idiot, he's a genius. He didn't make a mistake in telling this parable immediately after the prodigal son story. So listen hard to Jesus' words in this chapter. At first they seem a bit odd, but the more we dig, the more beautiful it becomes. So do have your Bible in front of you. You're going to need it. Let's have a look now. Have a look at chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So Jesus throws us right in the story. He says, imagine this rich man has got the biggest estate you've ever seen, full of whatever it is, olive oil, wheat, whatever. And he's loaded. And he's got this manager, this kind of accountant extraordinaire who's going to make sure that all of his accounts are balanced. But there's an accusation. His accountant has been squandering the goods. And so what does he do? Well, he does what any boss would do. Verse 2 He calls him in. Come into my office, sit down. You don't want that call, do you? And he says, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be manager anymore. What have you been doing? Either you're a crooked accountant and you've been nicking money for yourself, or you're just useless. Either way, you're out. And so... In verse 3 and 4, we kind of hear the inner turmoil, the inner monologue of this manager, this accountant. And he's saying, what am I going to do? 
My master is taking away my job. He's given me maybe two weeks to make this kind of audit so he can get the accounts in order. I'm too lazy, or I'm not strong enough to dig. I would think he sounds a bit lazy to me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And again, it's a smart move from Jesus. He doesn't actually tell us the plan. What is the plan in verse 4? Well, we see it in verses 5 to 7. Long story short, he goes to all of the debtors of his rich master, and he says, come here, I'll give you half price. And that, you know, he's making good friends for himself for the future, because he's like, if I give these guys half price in the future, they're going to bring me back, and they're going to say, you can work for me now. That's what he wants. And then he gives them 20% off for the next one, and we don't know what happens with the rest of them. It's a fairly normal parable, I suppose, except for verse 8. At the end of all this, the master, the rich man, commended the the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. That's weird. Why would he do that? Well, Note that he's not commending everything about what the manager's done. He's not saying that dishonesty was great. I love that he lost me half my profit on that wheat. But what he's saying is, I've got to take my hat off to him. That was a really smart move. He looked ahead. He looked into the future. He saw, I'm going to be without a job. If I make friends for the future, it'll go well for me. And the manager saw that. And so, Having looked at this parable, Jesus having taught this parable, I imagine there's quite a lot of people in the crowd, maybe like there are today, slightly confused as to the point. And so Jesus uh, explains in verse 9. This is his explanation. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. On the face of that, that sounds kind of creepy, doesn't it? Buying friends. It's kind of like this book. Have you ever seen this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? A number of people have told me I need to read this. Maybe that's about the number of friends I've got or the influence I have. But lots of people recommend the book to me, and I refuse to read it because of how weird that title is. I don't want to win my friends. I just want to have friends. And maybe when we hear Jesus say this, I just want to have friends. Uh, maybe when we hear Jesus say this in verse 9, use your money, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. We think of that. It sounds kind of weird and inauthentic. But when we look closely, as we're about to, we're going to find that it's not inauthentic or weird or unloving, but actually this is the most radical and loving command that Jesus could give us as Christians. So, the key to understanding what Jesus means in this verse is the phrase, when it is gone. Do you see that in the middle of verse 9? Make friends for yourselves. uh, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, if we've been reading through Luke carefully, and it would help if we spoke Greek, which I don't and most of us don't, but if we had we would be having some alarm bells going off in our heads with this word, when it is gone. Because in Luke chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus says a really similar thing. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven 
that will never fail. Now, that word fail is the same word in the original as gone. Fail and gone is the same thing. Jesus is basically saying in this verse in chapter 12, use your possessions now to bless those who are in need so that you will have in the future, you'll have this treasure in heaven that will never fade. I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the treasure in heaven bits, I'm a bit confused. What does that actually look like? Well, I think chapter 16, this is Jesus explaining what that looks like. So in chapter 16, the the quote at the top, Jesus is telling us that the treasure which we're storing up for ourselves in heaven when we're generous with our money, that treasure is friend-shaped, right? It's friend-shaped, saying, make friends for yourselves for the future. In fact, the word welcomed in verse 9, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings, that word's in the, that, that word's in the plural. That, that's saying there's multiple people doing the welcoming, So you could easily read it as, so that when it is gone, they, that is the friends, will welcome you into the eternal dwelling. So I hope this is clear. Jesus is telling us to use our money, use all of our possessions, to help people become Christians. That's who the friends are that we're making. And when those friends that we've made, when they get to heaven before us, then when we die after them, Jesus is saying, they're going to be there in heaven waiting for you to welcome you into glory. So Jesus is not just saying that spending our money as a church or our money as individuals for the salvation of other people is just nice and good. He's saying, no, the specific friends that you win into the kingdom will be the ones throwing the welcome party for you when you arrive. He's not speaking about fickle friends that you can buy. He's saying, disciples, use your possessions to bring people into the kingdom by your generosity. And having done that, you're going to find in the future it's going to be a treasure to you. Here's an illustration of this. I was, um, I was down in, in the borders of Scotland in Hoyt Baptist Church, a few years ago, and I sat in on one of their baptism classes where they uh, have new Christians come in who are wanting to get baptized, and they tell their stories. It's, it's a great thing. And there was a man in that class called John, and, and this was his story of how he became a Christian. So John has this physical disability. He uh, often needs to use a cane to help him walk, and sometimes he needs a uh, mobility scooter to help him get around. So John is in his... I guess mid-40s, I didn't ask, um, but he's in his mid-40s, I guess, and he's, he's not a Christian, he's never been interested in God, really. Uh, he said to me, Dan, I was sinning and I was happy with my sin. Hardened to God, no interest. <clears throat> now, each week he would go to Morrison's, the local supermarket, to do his weekly shop, and every week after he'd got all his shopping and he <clears throat> took him, himself and the shopping on the mobility scooter to his car, he'd have a real trouble getting the mobility scooter into his car so he can get home. And one day, when he was struggling, a woman came up to him. Her name was Kath. 
Kath had parked nearby and she saw him struggling, so she came over and she helped him pick up his scooter and get it into the car. And after he had thanked her, Kath ex explained that she used to use a scooter as well. In fact, she still does. But now she's got this cool new winch thing for her car, which like, is quite cool. It's like this little thing you attach to your mobility scooter. It lifts up the scooter and puts it in the car for you. Really expensive, but fantastic. Anyway, so over the next few months, they kept meeting in the car park. And over time, they became friends. You know, they would talk about more than just the weather. And it became clear to uh, John that Kath was a Christian. And occasionally, she'd invite him to come along to church. Each time he said no, again, he just wasn't interested. But one day, they saw each other in the car park, and as they were just chatting, Kath put a hand in her pocket and pulled out an envelope and handed it to him. He was like, this is weird. Opened up the envelope, had a look, and inside was a check for over a thousand pounds, and Kath said, I want you to use that to buy yourself a winch. And immediately, John handed back the check, he said, no, 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 this is your money. I can't take this, right? And what Kath said in response was just gold. No, this is God's money. I want you to have it. John said to me in that baptism class that he had never experienced kindness like that. And it made him realize that the God that Kath worships must be more than just some distant, faraway idea. And so because of this, John asked Kath if he actually could go to the thing he said no to. Can I actually come along to the curry night at the church, please? He came along. And then after that, he kept coming to church. And over the next few months, John found that Hoyt Baptist Church was the only place he'd ever felt loved and was ever really at home. And as he heard the gospel preached and saw it lived out in the lives of the members, he gave his life to Christ and he became a Christian. John's eternal destiny was changed from heaven, sorry, from hell to heaven because of Kath's generosity. Kath's wise generosity, thoughtful. Like Kath is not a super rich lady for whom a thousand pounds is really easy. She had to save up for that. And her wise, forward-thinking generosity opened John's eyes to see the love of God in a much more real way than he'd ever imagined. Now, if you speak to John now and you mention Kath, he lights up. He loves Kath with all his heart, right? He'll tell you all about how wonderful she is, how kind she's been to him. But can you just imagine if John dies before Kath and then Kath dies? What would John do in glory? Jesus is telling us the friends will welcome us in glory. John will see Kath and he'll wrap his arms around her. He'll be weeping tears of joy saying, Kath, you got me here. It was through Jesus, it was Christ who saved me, but without your generosity, I would not be standing here. I'd be burning in hell. Thank you. That's what Jesus is talking about. Make friends for yourselves for that moment. Who will be there for you when you enter glory? What human-shaped treasures are we storing up for ourselves in glory? Brothers and sisters, are we wise and generous with our possessions like Kath was? Of course, not all of our generosity looks like a blank check, does it? But Jesus is asking the question, are we silly or selfish with our money, with our possessions? How about your dinner table? 
When was the last time you had someone around just for dinner, just to chat, to have a real conversation? What about your car? How willing are you to help someone get to church, get to growth group, get to whatever, using the car you've got? What about our time, our savings? There's so much we can ask about. The big question that we want to come away with is, in what ways can we use our possessions to help bring people into the kingdom of God? And that's a massive question, and it's different for each one of us. So can I just encourage us all, as I've been challenged to, to go away tonight and think about this hard, to be wise about this, speak with our friends, conspire together. How can we bless this person, you know? We ought to think wisely and shrewdly, not in a silly or selfish way. There's another question, though. How can we help other Christians with our possessions? Our lives as Christians are this difficult, uphill pilgrimage to the heavenly Jerusalem. And the older Christians among us can tell us that that is not an easy journey. Church, are we helping our brothers and sisters by using just the practical possessions that we've got? What would that look like for you? Let's not just love people with our words and with our speech saying hello and hi and how are you doing on a Sunday evening. But let's practically love each other with word, speech, action, and truth. Now, have a look at verse 10 to 12. It becomes clear that Jesus definitely does want us to imitate the the manager in his shrewdness, but definitely not in his dishonesty, right? So in verse 10... Jesus uh, makes the point that the question is not how much you have. He talks about having very little or very much. The question is not how much, but how well. How well do you use what you have? It's like saying, if you can't trust your little toddler daughter to look after a baby doll, you're not going to trust her to look after her little baby sister, are you? That would be crazy. She's proved herself not faithful in the baby doll thing. It's not about how much we have, but how well we use it. I think this is a challenge to those of us who feel like we have very little in this world and therefore can't be very effective for God's kingdom. I can't give as much to the church's call for this church plant. I don't earn as much money as X or Y. God's saying that's not the point. He doesn't measure us by that. And if you think about it, it wouldn't make any sense if he did, right? God is entirely rich, the infinitely rich one. Compared to him, everyone is poor. He's not asking about that. But we will fail in our kingdom task if we don't use whatever he's given us in a faithful way. So this is a challenge not just to those among us who are rich, but to the students, to the teenagers, to those of us who just don't have a lot of money. So the natural conclusion of all of this is verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, what does Jesus say? Who will trust you with true riches? If we don't use the possessions that God has given us for his kingdom, we're not going to delight in the friend-shaped treasures who will wait for us in glory. It's just the natural conclusion of that. But to me, verse 12 is the kicker. Have a look. And if you've not been 
trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus is telling us, everything we have belongs to God. Do you remember Kath's statement of pure gold? John's saying, no, 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 it's, it's your money, you have it. But Kath got this. No, it's God's money. It's for you. There's an Old Testament example of this. I don't know how often you read First and Second Chronicles. It's worth reading. There's a lot of like, long lists, but there's beautiful things in there. And so in, in First Chronicles, we hear about David and all of the people of Israel, just all together, giving virtually everything they have for the sake of building the temple. Right? They give their gold and their silver and their precious stones, and it's remarkable. But even more remarkable is what they say to God afterwards. This is, Jesus, oh, sorry, this is David's prayer to God. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hands. Charlotte Chapel, the possessions we have now are few, they're worldly, and they're God's. We must use them well for the kingdom. Bring us on to our second point, though. Use our possessions well for the kingdom, but not as our king. Jesus' final words to his disciples are sobering. Have a look down at verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Love of money is idolatry. I won't belabor this point too much because Paul wonderfully nicked this part of my sermon in the morning when he talked in Exodus 32 about how when we love our money, we are making a golden calf of it. To love any possession above God is idolatry. It's a true saying. Our purse strings are tied to our heartstrings. But for a moment, just remember who Jesus is speaking to. Look at verse 1. Who is it? Jesus told his disciples. Speaking to disciples. Not to the tax collectors who, who refuse to come to him and don't worship the true God. Them, I get that he'd say this. But he's saying this to Christians. So why is he telling them that to love money is to hate God? I guess the answer's obvious. Because Christians often hate God and love money. We'd never say that with our mouths, right? But don't we say it with our wallets, our credit cards? Here's, here's a question. Someone asked me this a little while ago. I think it's a good question. Ask yourself this question. If a stranger was shown your bank statement and the way that you use all of your possessions, would they conclude that you worship the true God? Would they know that you're any different to anyone else? What kind of causes do you support with your charitable giving? Are they kingdom causes? Are they about bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to those in our world? Or not? Are we giving to the local church? Or not? 
On those happy, if somewhat rare occasions when the month is over and you've actually got more than you expected, how do you spend that? Please note, I'm not telling you what to do with your money. It's not for me to say. But as I've prepared this sermon, I've been really challenged about how my wife and I use our money. How often are we just hoping to have a little bit more at the end of the month so we can go on that date, go to that restaurant, not even thinking for a moment about the kingdom opportunities with this money. Not saying it's bad to go on dates or whatever it is, but I was struck that I need to think more about this. And we're not just uh, individuals, are we? We're not just swimming in the ocean by ourselves. We're on a big ship together. We are a church together heading for glory. So as a church... How do we use our money? Are we supporting organizations and projects and programs which are focused on kingdom work? If not, we really need to re-examine how we're using our money that God has entrusted to us. Now, we ought to pray for everyone involved in our finances, our elders, the finance team, ourselves as a membership. We need God's help to shrewdly use the money he's given us. So, what is Christ teaching us in these 13 verses taken all together? It's this. Christians, use your money for the kingdom, not as your king. Now that's a hard passage with a lot of quite personal, sharp applications for what we're doing with our money It's a high call that we're given by Jesus, and it's a difficult command. God calls us to shrewdly spend every single one of our possessions in a costly way, in some way for the kingdom. And if we're honest, that sounds like too much. Jesus is asking too much. But as I, as I thought about this, I noticed something wonderful about Luke's gospel, which is Jesus is telling us this parable now, but as we read the whole thing together, we actually realize Christ is not asking us to do anything that he's not already done himself. Right? Because seeing sinners entirely hopeless and poor in their righteousness, heading to hell, what does the king of the universe do? Clothed in majesty and glory and riches, takes it all off, comes down from the throne of richness down to become a little baby, to be held in his mother's arms, to be so dependent on her for the first five years of his life that he'd be entirely helpless without her. He spent everything he had. And it wasn't just this like slapdash mission where quickly he realized it's all going to go wrong, so at a... um, last minute, low budget, vague hope thing that maybe we can save a few of the good ones who aren't so far behind. No. He is eternally wise, eternally wealthy. He thought this all through. Ephesians chapter one, uh, Ephesians chapter one reminds us that before the universe began, our God considered the price it would, that he would have to pay to redeem us as Christians. And actually, there are, I would put good money on the fact that there are going to be people in this room who are not yet Christians, but God has considered the price on your head, and Christ paid it. 
It's wonderful. He knew what it would take for us to be, to, to, to be redeemed. Not only did he become a baby, but after that, he suffered many things. He took on actual, literal poverty. He had no place to lay his head. He was rejected by every respectable person. And in the end, he poured himself out to death for us. Christ has held nothing back from us because he loves us. So what is Jesus' reward for such extreme generosity for the sake of bringing sinners into the kingdom? Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, tells us it's much more than just what we're going to get. When we do our little bit in, in helping people towards the kingdom, we get a wonderful welcome party. But what does Christ get? He gets the worship of his much-loved people. Revelation chapter 5 says this, this is the saints and all creation worshiping him, saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. He deserves everything because he's done everything. He was slain for us. And it's that Christ, our Christ, who calls us to follow him even in costly giving when it's not easy. So as we finish, I think that is why this parable is the perfect follow-on from chapter 15. Did you notice as, we, as chapter 15 was preached for us, there's no tangible cost for the father to welcome his son back in? Like, there is, like, there's some shame for him, but there's no real cost. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is, look at how wonderfully God loves us, how he forgives us. But chapter 16 shows us the cost. Our forgiveness was bought at a price by a wise and a shrewd savior. And he calls us to join him in that, in the costly generosity to bring sinners into the kingdom. So brothers and sisters, let's use our possessions for the kingdom and not as our king. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we confess that so often we love our money and we hate you. We love our possessions and our comfort and we just turn our backs on you. Forgive us, please. Father, thank you that though we have never deserved it, you in eternity past planned shrewdly our salvation. Father, pray that you would help us, please, as a church family together to use all of our possessions for the kingdom. Looking forward to that day when we will see the, 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 the Mayadomu people whom we have enabled Carla and Alec to, to go and translate the gospels into their language so they can hear your word. We will see them there and we'll rejoice with them. Lord, help us to, to look forward to these things. Help us to live a life of self-sacrifice, knowing that we follow a Christ who has sacrificed himself for us. In Jesus' name.